Welcome to 200 a Day, the podcast where we talk about the 70s television detective show, The Rockford Files. I'm Nathan Paletta. And I'm Epidiah Ravishaw. And for this episode, instead of looking at a individual ep- episode of the show, uh, we're going to do a little bit of Q&A. We put out the call for some questions from our mm-hmm. listeners, um, and we got a bunch of good ones. So yeah. here we are. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I this is normally would we do the banter about why we chose the episode and mm. whatnot. So why a Q and A? Uh, because we've been going for quite some time, and <laughs> yeah, and uh, maybe a little feedback back and forth with our audience would be nice, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, we every so often, you know, we get a couple kind of responses to episodes, and we will put them in at the beginning of of the next episode. But because of our time lag. That tends to be kind of a boom and bust, right? Like we'll get like some stuff for a short amount of time and then nothing for a while. Um, so, you know, we, we, we try to put stuff in when we can, but we're not always in a position where we're in constant dialogue with the listeners. Um, so thought it'd be nice to kind of say hello and uh, Mm -hmm. get a sense of what's on all of your minds. Um, And also, this is a bit of a easier lift episode uh, to kind of fit into our time constraints towards the end of the summer as we're both dodging vacations and breaks and weather events and and whatnot. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's been a busy summer. Mm -hmm. Uh, But speaking of time delay, Mm. uh, this this may be the most uh, up to date um back and forth we have here because we did yes. we have some some uh comments about requiem for a funny box mm-hmm. which is the most recent episode uh it should be our second most recent episode by the time this comes out it was our episode 88 which i believe is not the latest one but the one before that okay but pretty close by our standards very this close by our standards hot on the heels this is a very close chase here We got an email uh, from listener Jamie with some interesting stuff. So in that episode, if I recall correctly, with the caveats that we don't remember what we say in the show, (laughs) um, but uh, uh, this is the episode where we have the... um, the comedian Kenny, who uh, gets you know, kind of draws Jim into not really his con, but his difficulties, uh, yeah. shall we say? Uh, and then there's the the big twist with his with the mobster who turns out is gay, and his dad doesn't like it, and it goes yeah. very sideways from there. Anyhow, uh, Jamie writes, uh, I do not have any proof for this, but my guess is that Kenny driving his car into the lake is a reference to a real event. Shecky Green driving his car into the Caesars Palace fountains in 1968. So in the episode, there's a line where it's like management also told me that Kenny Bell has not been a headliner in Vegas since he drove his golf cart into Lake Mead. Kenny is very much in the vein of the borscht belt humor that Shecky Green was famous for, uh, though he was more of a stand-up guy, pun intended, than Kenny, and funnier. Apparently, Green is still alive, and uh, Jamie heard him interviewed in the past few years on the Carson podcast. And there's a link, he sends a link to a a news story that, if I recall correctly, might be behind a paywall. Oh no, it's, uh, I was able to access it, and I I don't pay for my news. Um... (laughs) So it's it's kind of funny. This is this is a uh, he hit um, the fountains at uh, Caesar's Palace, and um, apparently when he hit it, he he ran into the fountain. This is how the story goes: he ran into the fountain, he put on his brakes, and he put on his uh, windshield wipers and waited <laughs> for the cops to arrive. And when they showed up, 
he said, no spray wax. Mm. As if he was just in a car wash. Right, he right. Was, you know, all right, this is funny. This is this is great stuff. But uh, it's a short little article, and I'm just kind of paraphrasing what it is. But like one of the things about it is that he's been in this business for a long time, and that is the number one question he gets asked is if this story is true, if this <laughs> is the thing that actually happened. And he says that it is, and that um, uh, he blames – or doesn't blame, but uh, attributes that to um, – they had like lampposts that were breakaway at, mm. at that point. They had just put him in. Like they apparently – you know uh, – we used to think that the best way to have safety on the road was to have something giant and sturdy <laughs> and transfer all of that energy right. of a collision into the human body. Right, right. And later we discovered that it's maybe better to have things crumple and take up a lot of that energy. And this is one of those moments where the the, the lamp was designed to crumple so that uh, he wouldn't kill himself on it. And so that's why he had mm. a long and storied career after <laughs> Yeah, and we didn't really talk. I mean, the the Borscht Belt. This is we didn't really talk about that in our episode, but that's absolutely the kind of yes, uh, you know, again, take my wife, please, kind of humor that the that Kenny is riffing on the character of Kenny Bell is riffing off of. Yeah, it's it's fun in the episode, and we may have commented on this, but it, uh, watching how Rocky just. I don't even know if Rocky gets the humor so much as that he just knows that something funny's happening and he should laugh. He knows the shape of the humor. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you can tell that Jim is just like, oh, come on. Like, mm -hmm. why are we still doing this? And uh, that's good stuff. Jamie also uh, mentions, so in that episode, we also talked about car inspection stops because there's that oh, yeah. point about Jim's car getting stopped for a routine inspection. And we talked about how I don't think either of us have experienced those. Jamie writes that uh, I grew up in New York and in the 70s and 80s, there were there were routine stops to make sure people had done their yearly car inspection. I think they also checked to see if you'd taken your snow tires off by a certain date. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, much later, there were police roadblocks to check for drunk driving. But those would have been at night. And that reminded me that I definitely when I first started driving in New Mexico, you know, as a teenager, there definitely were those nighttime drunk driving checkpoints. Like, oh, yeah. Where there would be barriers and you you get funneled down into one lane and mm -hmm. then um, basically just like roll down your window and it was up to the cop to decide whether you were drunk or not, I guess. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah. And so I don't think I've ever been stopped for a routine inspection, but those drunk mm -hmm. driving stops definitely happened. And that feels very much like a transition from the 70s to the 90s. Like, yeah, <laughs> transitioning from the let's make sure that you've gotten your car safety inspection to let's see if you're drunk. You know, it's interesting because I, I I was thinking about this because I just went on a big, long car journey. And um, there was one point in it where we had to stop at a toll booth, which is, in and of itself is a very archaic thing nowadays because mm. you would use your your um, uh, transponder. Mm -hmm. So high tech. Um, I actually thought about this episode and I thought about like the, this, if I wasn't crossing a border and the police were stopping people, the fear I would have mm. about what dangerous situation is happening. Yeah. Like, are they, is there a fugitive or is there something else? Is there like a gas leak or they're trying to get people to, you know, or whatever. Um, so yeah, it's definitely something that has fallen by the wayside as far as I understand, but yeah, I 100% believe they, they existed because it was in the Rockford files. Right. Right. That stuff is documentary. <laughs> and then we have a, a follow-up 
comment from uh, Rebecca on our Patreon. This is now the, the third shout out for uh, uh, getting us involved in this episode. So thanks again. <laughs> um, but she says that uh, this episode is one of my favorites because it has so many curveballs. I remember being a little shocked on the first watch that Jim was so open about asking if Lee was gay because it was the 70s after all. The fact that they even used that as a plot point and that, uh, as far as I know, it didn't get any major pushback from the network blew my mind. I wanted to throw this in here because I feel like this is something that is absolutely true. I thought that also, and I don't think we talked about it in the episode. Yeah. But how there was kind of a moment of like, oh, oh, he just said that, huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it would be a perfectly comfortable uh, conversation to have today. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, given the time period, uh, yeah, I, I agree. Um, yeah, and also I think nowhere in doing the little the, the little amount of background research that we, that I do for these uh, did I see anything about the network having any kind of problem or right. any kind of I mean certainly nothing to the level of uh, making sure that there were seatbelts in all of the right <laughs> in all of the cars from uh, our last episode. Uh, all right, well thanks for those responses and uh, as always if you have thoughts or feedback about our episodes as we go rolling along you can email two hundred a day podcast uh the le- the letters uh you know, 200 spelled out 200 a day podcast at gmail.com um you can tweet at us at 200 pod uh or join the patreon at patreon.com slash 200 a day all right so that all said let's move on to our cues that we can a oh excellent yes we're going to take a quick break to say thank you to our patrons over at patreon.com slash 200 a day Thanks to you, we are a 100% listener-supported show. We extend special thanks to our Gumshoe patrons supporting this episode. Chuck from WhatYou'reReading.com, Paul Townend, who also recommends the podcast Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color at FruitLoopsPod.com, Shane Liebling, check out his dice-rolling app Roll for Your Party for all of your online gaming needs at RollForYour.Party, Jay Adon, check out his amazing miniature painting skills over at JayAdon.com, Dale Norwood, Dave P., Dale Church, Dave Otterson, Kip Hawley, and Matthew Lee. And finally, we can't thank our detective patrons enough for their generous support. Eric Antenor, at Antenor on Twitter. Brian Pereira, at Thermoware. Bill Anderson, at BillAnd88. And of course, Richard Haddam, at Richard Haddam. We follow them too, at 200pod. Why become a patron for as little as $1 an episode? In addition to supporting the show and exclusive episode previews, our patrons get Plus Expenses, a bonus podcast where we casually chat about media we're enjoying and the things going on in our lives. An episode of Plus Expenses comes out in advance of every episode of 200 a day. Help out the show by leaving a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, tell a friend who you think would like it, and check out patreon.com slash 200 a day to see if becoming a patron is right for you. We'll start with a couple from Twitter. When putting out the call, uh, we did frame this as ask us a question. It can be about the show or it can be about something that's not the show. Most of them are about the show. Um, But we do have one from from Twitter from at Tinstar Games one who asks, I have a question. Do you like RPGs? Can I send a free copy of my RPG about TV detectives? Yes. And yes. (laughs) So, yeah, uh... (laughs) <laughs> the, so the question here that I have for you, mm-hmm. Nathan, yes. um, do you think the first question was meant to be a little facetious? <laughs> there may be a bit of a bit of a tongue in cheek uh, yeah, yeah. situation here. Tin Star Games is uh, in, in, in the in the biz as far as I know. Yeah. So, yeah, um, 
I believe we have a little, we're having a little bit of fun here, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I would say currently direct all of your RPG submissions to Epi because mm-hmm. he probably has more time to read them. I have a little more RPG bandwidth. Um, yeah, I, I actually went to Tin Star Games, um, website, uh, to just kind of take a look at, at the, the stuff that they have there. There's a lot of like, uh, well, I mean, the name Tin Star has a very, uh, uh, Western sheriff feel to it. Um, uh, but I'm also very happy to just pick one up and take a look at it. It is this easy to, uh, yeah, to convince Epi to look at a role playing game. Right. Yeah. Um, I will say that there's a, so I, you know, as, uh, Longtime listeners will will know because we talked about it a little bit. You know, I do have a, a detective RPG yeah. that's based on Columbo for the most part, um, and that I think we may have talked at some point about like what would a Rockford role playing game kind of look like? What would it mm-hmm. entail? And I feel like that's actually been a much tougher nut to crack. Yeah, I mean, um, Columbo has a, uh, a a formula. Yeah, it has more of the. It has more of a dramatic formula. Yeah, a format that is very... Replicable. Yeah. While I feel like the Rockford Files, where I keep getting hung up with doing some, you know, because I'm not going to lie, I've made some notes about, like, what would Mm -hmm. a Rockford Files game look like? As have I. Right. (laughs) Um, And I think I keep getting hung up on, like, once you take Jim out of it, like, once you don't have this particular cast, how much of it is just any detective show doctor who is another series that like there've been quite a few role playing games doctor who role playing games made uh but they all have to tackle that same thing where they're like so is someone going to play doctor who right, is someone right. going to play the doctor like is someone going to play jim or if not then so what is it what what are right. we what are we doing here <laughs> what are we doing here uh as opposed to say something like a star trek game where you can easily imagine a a different uh, starship and a different mm-hmm. crew on it and just kind of play around in that universe. There's uh 1970s, uh, LA, mm-hmm. um, you know, the Malibu or whatever, like, I guess that's a fun world that you could play around in. That's certainly a thing that you can role play in, but it does, it doesn't, uh, that's not what would carry right. a Rockford files one. So yeah, it's a very interesting. So I'll, I'll throw out the one nugget that I think I've come, I've come up with and never, never done anything with. So maybe, maybe for you or maybe for one of our listeners to, to run with at some point, mm-hmm. which is that the dramatic content is kind of driven by the fact that um, it's 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 kind of a you have three choose one dynamic. Mm-hmm. Jim always has a set of pressures in order to get through each episode, and generally they're along the dimensions of like getting paid, keeping someone safe, and 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 some variation of like stopping a crime or right. bringing a criminal to justice. And those three things need to be in tension so mm-hmm. that there's some element where if you're chasing money, it's going to make people, it's either going to make someone more unsafe or less likely that you'll catch the criminal. If you're chasing keeping someone safe, it makes less likely you're going to make money, less like a criminal, et cetera, right? Yeah. Like, that's, that's kind good. of the dynamic that I think I would start building a game around. Um, and that's as far as I've gotten. Cause then you get to the like, so do you play Jim? Do you play right. a detective? You know, like, what are we, what are we doing here? Um, but yeah, that's the, 
that that's been the little kernel the little kernel of insight that i think has emerged for me out of doing this show for four years or whatever yeah (laughs) (laughs) i yeah i think that's a good very good starting point um the the sort of um cheat that i'm doing is that i'm i'm just doing a parody so it doesn't matter mm-hmm. like it just doesn't like right, it, right. the the whole thing i'm doing is just a complete joke so there's no need for me to actually be able to uh replicate a, a, a rockford files or not even replicate a rockford files episode but like the feel of the rock but yeah because my mine is jim rockford meets the muppets <laughs> right. you know and like so who cares like at that point you could absolutely just have a Columbo character step in and, and start doing things or, or, but, but why or, would you, when you could have a Muppet? Right. Exactly. <laughs> Although I think Peter Falk would work really well with Muppets, but um, I am intrigued. At, like uh, I will say we, we should state that, that at no point in this tweet does Tin Star Games claim to be making uh, a, a Rockford Files. Right. right. Role it's a TV detectives one, which is a broader genre. And, uh, I'm curious to see how that gets tackled. So mm-hmm. yeah, I'd, I'd love to take a look at that. And if the whole thing was uh, just giving us a little, little humorous uh, nudge, then uh, yeah. you should write a detective game. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and if you weren't aware that we were into role playing games, we are into role playing games. <laughs> right. Yes, and in our in our early days, the whole reason we were doing not reason the structure for the show was how can we use the lessons from the Rockford Files to write better games and tell better stories. Yes, and then we kind. <laughs> of covered all the lessons in the first 20 episodes um (laughs) now that there's not more depth there but it's kind of we're reiterating the same themes over and over used to be the second half or third of a of of an episode yeah the last half hour yeah and we we don't have that left in us yeah all right so also from twitter uh at steelers (laughs) 1288 which is how i like to read these numbers uh asks what episode did James Colburn direct? This is a very Googleable question. However, mm-hmm. I didn't know off the top of my head. Uh, and I was like, huh, James Coburn directed an episode, huh? Um, and sure enough, James Coburn, a uh, famous actor, Oscar-winning mm-hmm. actor, I believe. He directed season four, episode eight, Irving the Explainer, which stands out to me because it's an episode that I am really looking forward to doing on the show, but it it's one that I'm kind of like, it's it's kind of in the slot for me of almost like a movie where it's like, I know this one's going to be a lot. Um, right. Because it's, it's, it's an episode, it's an extremely talky episode and it's very circuitous and weird and it might not be good, but it's really good. You know, like, right. I don't know. It's so it's one where we have to be on the top of our game. Yeah. Yeah. I have to be like ready. Like I want to yeah. do it, but I also want to be like ready to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so as it turns out, it is the only thing that James Coburn has ever directed. Um, so I look forward <laughs> to seeing <laughs> yeah. how, how, how that aspect of it stands out. Um, uh, James Coburn was uh, co-starred with, James Garner in three movies uh, also. So you can see the connection probably, yeah. you know, coming together there. Uh, uh, the Great Escape and The Americanization of Emily, which I still have not seen. Oh, it's um, good. So I'm told. I think it was his favorite movie, if I remember right. J- James Garner's favorite movie that he was in. Yeah. Uh, and, then, and then he was in the Maverick movie in, in the 90s. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Americanization of Emily is... Uh, he plays a very Jim Rockford like character who's in the army. Like he, he's a, um, in acquisitions and mm-hmm. absolutely does not want to get involved in, in the fight and has like a very moral ground for why he doesn't want to get involved in it. It's good. It's, um, 
It's also got, uh, um, oh, I'm blanking on her name. Julie Andrews? That's it, yes, as Emily. Uh, and she's great in it, too. And it's, you know, uh, I think that one of the the sort of kind of a, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Like a testament, one of the testaments to uh, who James Gardner was that you always hear about people he's co-starred with and then like how they've been lifelong friends. Right, you right. Know, like yeah. that, you know, <laughs> so yeah. I should definitely should watch it at some point. Um, but yeah, simple question, but interesting uh, little delve. Uh, look, mm-hmm. Looking forward to, to that, uh, looking at that episode whenever we get to it. So we had a, a trio of strong questions uh, in our email uh, mm-hmm. from listener Mary. And we'll start off with, where did the costume department get those jackets? Uh, my dad got his from post office auctions and rummage sales, or when mom bought him one from Sears. <laughs> I don't have a specific answer for this because it's awfully difficult to find information on the logistics of 1970s TV costuming departments. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, however, I would not be surprised that Sears is probably an answer. Yeah, yeah, that seems like a legitimate. I uh, this made me think of um, lament that I don't see this stuff at like thrift stores and whatnot mm-hmm. that much anymore, so that I can't pick up my rockford look right i don't have a rockford look. i wish i had a rockford look is what <laughs> right. i'm saying I... <laughs> if only yeah so like everything about the show and i think we'll touch on this a lot through a lot of these questions but like there's so much of james garner in jim rockford mm-hmm. right he's almost always like he always has like big not big not like obnoxious but like fairly fairly visible belt buckles yeah. Right. And stuff like that. And I feel like that's just kind of a someone who grew up in Oklahoma and was the size mm-hmm. of man that he was kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like he's also a, a fairly large dude. So his clothes kind of have, you know, fit that body type. Um, yeah. And so there's probably not a huge difference in just stuff that he would wear. I would imagine this is one of those areas where we have to you know, we're not uh, the authority on this matter. So we're just speculating at right, this right. point. But um i just recently learned that uh um speaking of columbo that peter falk uh provided columbo's wardrobe like that was his (laughs) own clothing so it would not surprise me if Mm -hmm. if a lot of that did just come from james gardner Mm -hmm. his own uh wardrobe the real question is where did angel get his clothes yes so that's there's that and i was just thinking about um the episode with the the woman who was also a detective that hired him. Oh, uh, the real easy red dog. The, yes. And that one scene. We talked yeah. about the color blocking in that scene. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I don't mean to say that, like, everyone was just wearing their street clothes. Like, right, clearly yeah. there's, to, to greater or lesser degree, some episodes are more, have more specific and thoughtful framing that includes yeah. the clothing um, than others. Uh, and obviously there was a costume department and everything. Um, yeah. I just think in terms of like the style and cut and that kind of stuff was probably like yeah. the same kind of things that, <laughs> that yes. Garner would wear. <laughs> um, there was one little nugget that came up when I was trying to look into this, which is that there was a, uh, the costume designer for like the later part of the series. It was like 78 to 80 uh, by the name of Kent Warner. His internet claim to fame is that so MGM auctioned off a bunch of stuff in 1970 that they mm-hmm. had from movies, you know, throughout the golden age of Hollywood and everything, including Ruby Slippers from The Wizard of Oz. And this guy, Kent Warner, he helped organize the auction and somewhere mm-hmm. in that process procured four 
of the five pairs that had been made for that movie. Pairs of? Of the ruby slippers. Oh. And those are like big collector's items. And there was recently a story, like I think from like a couple months ago, of either a pair of ruby slippers or maybe one of Dorothy's dresses or something that had been uncovered in the like office of a somewhat of a professor who worked in a theater department somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it was, it's a big discovery because there's only so many of these that are out right. there. Anyway, little nugget that has nothing to do with the Rockford files, but I was like, huh, what do you know? You have to wonder if he only managed to get four of the five pairs, what, what powers awaited him if he had ever accomplished, <laughs> if he ever put together all five pairs mm-hmm. in the same, I don't know. I mean, those were powerful slippers. They're very powerful slippers. Uh, question two from Mary. I, I almost said Ruby. <laughs> uh, question two from Mary. How close were Stephen J. Cannell and James Gardner? The scripts all had such a melancholic outlook tempered with an abiding sense of honorable behavior that I wondered how much of it was the design of the Rockford character and how much of it was the personal outlook of the writers, writers slash writers. Good question. And I, I, the phrasing here is great. Um, and I think this is bang on the, the melancholic yeah. outlook tempered with the abiding sense of honorable behavior. Yeah. Uh, that's, uh, I wish I had written that sentence. I mean, it's, it's definitely a, a solid draw for me for the show. Like I, I've, I've been lately been thinking about how much just having, a, um, th- that sort of melancholy being a part of something, mm-hmm. uh, it just, pulls me in 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 ways where if if it's absent I, i'm not i'm less interested in what's going on so mm. go on yeah uh so i think from here on we're gonna have a lot uh a lot of the stuff that i'm gonna be saying is basically paraphrasing out of the ed robertson book um mm-hmm. 30 years of the rockford files which uh note for anyone who's interested there's a new edition out 45 mm-hmm. years of the rockford files Oh, um, that I think came out last year or something. So I'm not sure how much is, is new or updated or changed. Um, I know it's out. I have not gotten a copy yet. Uh, I plan to at some point. But uh, yeah, I mean, we uh, I reference it all the time just because it's a great kind of yeah. one stop shop for all the Rockford Files information you'd really ever want to know. So uh, a lot of this stuff kind of comes from my read of that. Uh, basically anything interesting that we say is probably pulled from someone else yes. on who <laughs> was either there at the time or interviewed people who were there at the time. Uh, we yeah. don't have like particular insight into things like how it worked or whatever. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Or just a couple of uh, knuckleheads watching a show. We, we enjoy the product and we like to analyze the product. Right, right. But, but part of that is finding out how, how the sausage is made, if you will. Um, so to this question, how close were Cannell and Garner? So I think probably pretty close. Um, first of all, pretty much every oral history interview account of this show includes a mention uh, of how like tight knit everyone was, how it felt like a family, um, even though it was, you know, anything like this is a difficult process. They're always, you know, rushing. It's always needs to be on a certain budget, certain time. Mm-hmm. Like it's hard, but that it was the, the people were all great people and everyone liked working together for the most part, extending to with the movies, bringing back people in roles that they'd had in the seventies that they had since 
surpassed in their careers. Right. Coming back into those, those older roles just because this was, I used, I was the assistant sound person on the show in 1974. So now 1994, I'll do that again, even though now I'm, you know, like right. some big shot. Right. Um, so that's one element. And then another element is that, so not without going like, again, this is stuff, I guess one, one could read all the details, but the show was developed. Uh, the original concept of the show by Roy Huggins was essentially developed with the idea that James Garner would be the star. Like, I mean, it was originally a Toma episode, which was, but he kind of had this idea of it would be something else and they could get Garner back because he'd been doing movies and coming back from Maverick, going back to the Maverick days. um, Like this is Jim Rockford is Maverick, but a detective, right? Um, Right. So that's the conception. And then uh, Roy Huggins gives the pilot story to Stephen Cannell to write. Right. So Mm -hmm. he he writes the teleplay. And we'll talk about this more also with the next question. But um, writing the actual script is where a lot of the Jim Rockford character emerged. Mm -hmm. And that's like from the pilot. Right. That's like Cannell knowing that James Garner is going to be this character writing towards his strengths and developing the character and then seeing it come to life right in the pilot. So it seems like it's all intertwined. Like it's kind of, well, I don't know. What do you, th- what, so I'll, I'll throw it back to you at this point. Cause I was, I was about to say it's kind of like going back and forth, but also, you know, Garner was always the, I, I just say what they give me guy right yeah we talked about this last episode we were talking a little bit about improving. yeah i think we talked to we talked about this in the uh plus expenses plus expenses for yeah. our last episode yeah so uh, i'll just kind of restate because again because colombo keeps showing up in this one right a little secret colombos here and there um <laughs> tiny tiny colombos tiny little, colombos. little tiny guys just uh, hanging out peter falk uh would improv a lot of the Columbo mannerisms and would sometimes drop lines on people. And you can kind of see that in the show. Sometimes like he'll ask them for a, a pen or something and, and the actor will look a little befuddled, um, which is perfect for the show because this is exactly what the character of Columbo is doing. He's kind of taking people off their guard or whatever. Um, then as we were talking about that, we were talking about how James Gardner, like he reads what's written for him. Uh, but that doesn't mean he doesn't breathe absolute life into the character, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's different ways to collaborate. And we do know that, uh, you know, like we were just talking before about our assumptions that he probably had a lot to say about the wardrobe or, you know, we know he had a lot to say about the car. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, we, we have stories about, um, making sure like, uh, the same people were writing for him and, you know, mm-hmm. like. So there's obviously a dialogue going on there between um, them. And I like having never been an actor or a writer for television. I don't know what that chemistry is like. I can Mm -hmm. only imagine. But in this particular case, my imagination is that it was probably really good. Like I like (laughs) uh, you would have to be tremendously good at your job if that chemistry wasn't there. Hmm. And you were able to to pull off a character like this with with the the life that this character has, right? Like, um, there's there's also something. There's an element, right, of like once the show is established, the writing the writers are writing towards the character that they know exists, right? Yeah, and this is a thing that you people can engage in like recreationally. Like people do fan fiction all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the character exists. You, you have an idea of even how a certain actor plays that character and you can kind of write towards that. And um, yeah, I, I mean, 
I really find that feedback loop very interesting. Mm-hmm. Like it's a it's a it's a neat creative process. I'm vaguely remembering so there's there's on YouTube there's definitely a series of interviews with Garner about mm-hmm. the Rockford files, like when he was well, I think from the nineties. And I just I, I would have to look it up again. I did not have a chance in advance of recording, but I'm pretty sure in one of those interviews he's like, Stephen Cannell was the greatest writer I ever worked with or something. Like yeah. he, like what do you think makes uh, Steve Cannell uh, a special uh, uh, talent for television? Most prolific writer I've I've seen in many, many years. He could just pour them out. I watched he and David chase. We needed a script on Monday, and this was like a Wednesday. And they started talking about a storyline. And David or Steve said, I'll write the first half, you write the other half. They put them together on Monday, and they worked. That's how good they were. I was very fortunate. I had the three best writers and Steve Cannell, David Chase, and uh, Juanita Bartlett. And we had a good cast, and good people, and wonderful writers. It all starts with the writing. You're not going anywhere without writing. If I can find it, I'll throw it in the show notes. But I, I think all signs point to they were, not only were they on the same wavelength about the character, but yeah. they had a very like productive working relationship as you know, friends and colleagues. Speaking of uh, good, productive. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, question number three from Mary. Um, Angel Martin is one of the best characters ever written. No lies detected. <laughs> uh, and Stuart Margolin played him perfectly. Again, no lies detected. Uh, who came up with Angel? All right. So this was one I got to do a little bit of research on because I, I didn't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Angel's in the pilot. Again, famously, we haven't done the pilot yet. Uh, mm-hmm. I want to do the pilot as our second to last episode. So we yeah. still have a while before we get there. Um, but but Angel is in, is in the pilot. Or, and this was one of the great one of one of two great contributions to the show right from the jump uh, from Stephen Cannell, which was that apparently um, in the original story, Roy Huggins had had him in there as kind of like a semi important heavy character. Mm-hmm. And Cannell basically wrote in all the angel miss <laughs> into his dialogue and into the script for the, the pilot. angelishness, the angelishness. Yes. So that's one great contribution. Cannell also basically wrote Rocky into the script. Oh, the nice. other great, the great yeah. contribution right from the jump. Um, but then, uh, uh, technically on, on, uh, kind of the logistical level, Stuart Marglin was cast by Meta Rosenberg, who was the show's executive producer. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was in contention essentially because he had been in Nichols, which was the, the Garner vehicle that had flamed out a couple of years earlier. And it was one source of why he like stopped doing TV for a while. Oh, there's a whole history there, but basically just, uh, it was another Roy Huggins joint that just didn't, but this one, it just didn't hit. Um, it was mm-hmm. another Western. You, you liked James Garner and Maverick now in Nichols, but Nichols was just yeah. not right for the time or something. Again, there's a whole bit about it in, in the, um, Ed Robertson book, but Stuart Marlin had been in that show, which I didn't know mm-hmm. in a similar role and kind of like, a in kind of like a huckster yeah. kind of role. So now I would like to watch Nichols just to see how much yeah. like chemistry <laughs> is there. Cause, it, cause it's kind of like, oh, well, obviously this angel character should be Stuart, right? Like, right. Yeah. How much of that is there? I actually pulled a quote for this one from, uh, the Ed Robertson book. Jim Garner loves working with Stuart, said Juanita Bartlett. From the moment they worked on Nichols, 
Jim said of Stewart, he gives you more than almost any actor I can think of. There's a wonderful thing that happens between Jim and Stewart. They just work so beautifully together. Yeah. So there we go. I mean, so there are a lot of great scenes with Angel in it, but like some of my all time favorite are Angel and Jim. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I thought we were friends. Mm -hmm. You know, these like they're truly heart wrenching and they're hard to 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 do without. Well, I mean, without having this character, Angel would be an incredibly annoying character if Stewart didn't do it. Right, Stuart right. Markland didn't do it. Like, there's some, there's something magical happening with this character that makes makes him work. There's some element of like endearingness. Yeah, that is like not because it's not like a heart of gold situation. Like the character doesn't have that like, but he's really good underneath. Every so often, he kind of comes through in the clutch. Because his own skin's on the line, usually. Um, It's important for the audience to believe that Jim and Angel are friends. Right. And I think, and and all of the text is telling you that this is a bad idea for Jim. Mm -hmm. Like, all of it. And still, it works. And I think part of that is that these two just work so well together. That the, 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 the two actors just bring something to it that you just... 100% 100% believe it and also can sympathize mm-hmm. with Jim. You could be like, I've got a friend who I, you know, mm-hmm. um, obviously, obviously not, not you. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, so like the, 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 the question who came up with angel, it's a little, um, it's a little, uh, which came first mm-hmm. the chicken or the egg, right? Like, yeah. Like would, would this character have worked if, you know, Stu Marklin wasn't available. Right. Yeah. If they had Don Rickles. Hmm. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so interestingly, and this is something that we definitively cannot answer right now, but in the pilot, Rocky is played by someone else because oh, yeah. um um Noah, Noah Barry, Barry. Yeah, wasn't available. Like, you know, he, he was booked with some other gig, right? Mm-hmm. But he was cast as that, just couldn't do the pilot. And then, you know, was off to the races for the rest of the show. And so one of the big questions for me when we finally do the pilot is like, all right, how thrown am I going to be by someone else being (laughs) Rocky? Some other Rocky. That's not my Rocky. That's not my, well, we'll find out. We'll find out. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. So, uh, yeah. Thanks for the great questions, Mary. Oh yeah. Thank you. All right. We move on to some questions from patrons. Friend of the show, Sam comes, comes at us with a, with a big (laughs) one. Yeah. Since I've started watching Columbo finally, good choice, Mm -hmm. can you talk a bit more generally about where the Rockford Files sits in its cultural lineage or context in regards to what inspired and drove its creation and evolution, and what you see as some of its key points of influence for future works? Columbo and Maverick slot into that heritage for obvious reasons, but what about other detective PI con man fiction in various forms before and after? Even the trend of aging screen star does genre TV might be an interesting lens to point in both directions chronologically. Big, somewhat shapeless question, but still interested in any discussion it might inspire. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Sam. <laughs> it is a big question. Uh... We will now present our thesis. Yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, like we've we've spoken quite a bit already about sort of the the Maverick heritage, but Maverick in and of itself has like a nice uh, standout against the Western mm-hmm. um, in that it's it's not a story of a gunman as we would expect from a Western. It's a a, a gambler, just an honest gambler. <laughs> uh, all right, so if we're looking backwards, right, like we're looking at influences into the Rockford Files. Mm-hmm. 
I think about how um, this the Rockford Files to me is a little genre blending mm-hmm. in that like it it definitely like the, there is the the Western influence via Maverick. There's it's obviously got a noir thing going. He is a private eye, right? Mm-hmm. Like in he's a private eye where trouble seeks him out often, mm-hmm. uh, and um, there's there's that going on but then in contrast to like the private eyedness uh it does and sam mentions this there's the con man aspect of it there's you know we often bring up the sting or Mm. like uh um i'm blanking on the name of the book uh the big con the big con yeah Mm. um but you know with the with the addition of like rocky and the addition of beth and there's a very okay i was i was gonna say family drama but it's like it's it's not that yeah so it's so i think interestingly the sting is is contemporaneous right so the sting is a 1973 movie yeah um set in the 30s but uh yeah you know it's it's kind of almost in conversation with Mm -hmm. the rockford files um it's i guess it's immediately preceding it right yeah you know think these things move in waves of like looking back at a thing right so like we have these 70s movies that are looking back at the 30s you know Mm -hmm. 80s movies looking back at the like 50s 50s and 60s Mm -hmm. um 2000s movies looking at the 80s right like yeah yeah that's that's a thing i guess another kind of just grounding point for the rockford files is that it was self self self-consciously or specifically created to be a detective show that's not like all the other detective shows yeah. In the same way that Maverick is a Western that's not like all the other Westerns. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the stuff, I don't know, I feel like in a lot of genres, we've talked about this, I think, on, on a lot of Plus Expenses episodes, but in many genres, the stuff that sticks out in the arc of time mm-hmm. <laughs> is the stuff that was not, if the genre is just like a, there's this big river of, of TV detective and police shows, right? Mm-hmm. And if you're just like straight down the middle I don't know, Hill Street Blues, maybe I'm like, you know, like if you're just kind of like a this is what we are show and then you have stuff kind of moving against the current. Right. Rockford Files is is breaking the other way in the scope of time as that. I don't know. My I'm mixing my I'm losing my metaphor here. But the the stuff that that sticks out is the stuff that's like exactly in the middle or the stuff that's cutting back the other way. All the stuff between those kind of fades away falls away in our and gets memory hold and the like the the stuff that sticks out becomes sort of the um right it, it, that is now the institution of yes. the genre <laughs> that later work is now going to respond to right yeah yeah that's where i was trying to go with that <laughs> um yeah looking forward it's fun like uh, one of my favorite things since we've started this and it's because of what we called the the podcast but the 200 a day Hmm. Or some variation thereof yeah. shows up everywhere in detective stories past the Rockford Files. It's got to be a nod mm-hmm. every time. Yeah. Like I, I mean, like know. even I mean, you know, like the the twenty dollars a day Star Trek yes, episode, exactly. right? Like, yeah. uh, and and just things files the whatever files. Like, yes, there's there's TV episodes named the whatever files. Yeah, and that's going to be the more like investigate mm-hmm. kind of thing or maybe it's a send-up of a kind of detective thing or whatever but yeah um that's uh that's certainly uh a, a touch point for later work yeah it would be interesting to me and like obviously this is not research that i've done yet sorry sam i've not done my homework 
Um, yeah, I feel like like an adequate answer to this question would require way more off the top of my head TV knowledge than I actually have. <laughs> right. But I mean, like uh, to think of it as like, OK, so let's say we're going to do this homework. <laughs> like, where do we go next? I, I, like, I would want to find out if, for instance, and it may, in fact, be within my power to find this out. Uh, if the Rockford Files had any influence on leverage, right? Oh, sure, um, yeah. Which I, yeah, which I mean, I think actually, I don't know. I feel like at some point someone sent me a tweet from John Rogers, the the leverage yeah. guy, that was about the Rockford Files or or something. Yeah, like um, it would not surprise me in the slightest. Yeah, and in fact, it wouldn't surprise me if, like, on some episode, if they made it very clear they just like named the characters after all the characters in the Rockford Files, or yeah. you know, um, but. Like, that's me painting into one particular show. It just keeps showing up over and over again. And, uh, well, I think there's like, you could do a lineage project, right? Where it's like, okay, where, where, where I would probably start is, um, go to, it would be with Magnum PI, mm-hmm. um, because we already have the character, not the character, we have the actor crossover, right? right. right? Um, it, obviously, Eddie Brockelman. Eddie, is it Brockelman? Not, not Jordan Brockelman. Yeah. From Twitter, Richie <laughs> Brockelman from the show. Yes. Um, yeah, yes. Richie, yeah, we, yeah, the Richie Brockelman show. Um, but, uh, uh, Magnum PI, mm-hmm. um, where there's, there's text about how Tom Selleck had Jim Rockford as a role model for a character. Yeah. Like, clearly he does his own thing, but like, yeah. That show is is coming out directly, essentially, yes. out of the Rockford <laughs> Files, among other influences. Yeah. Um, and then where do you go for Magnum PI? Um, now we're <laughs> now we're in the nineties, and I don't know what happened to television. Um, oh, um, the other one, the other one I was going to say is uh, uh, Remington Steel. Yeah. Which I, again, I haven't really watched, but the premise of it is a very Rockfordy premise where it's the it's like, a con it's a con yeah where it's like yeah. a fake detective that you know is is mm-hmm. created so that this so that the, the woman can actually do her detecting um so like there's the branching paths from there where what did those shows then inspire that one could investigate to actually answer this question <laughs> yes and uh i the like the j turn uh being just a thing now that's the that's what people call it and yeah yeah i think and, so in terms of the broader cultural influence yeah the things that people who don't know the show wouldn't even know are references that just our references yeah 200 something a day or something a day something hundred a day plus expenses uh the j turn um the x the x files eh? yeah 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 um to, to like bring mary back into the discussion for a moment here mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, that wonderful thing she said about uh, how it was uh, melancholic outlook tempered with an abiding sense of honorable behavior. Mm. So that actually that last bit there is the thing that I would be most interesting in seeing is if Rockford's sense of morality, which is mm-hmm. kind of uh, like a, a, a bedrock of the show itself, right? Like mm. the, without it, the show doesn't, I don't think work. I mean, there's a lot of elements without which the show doesn't quite, wouldn't quite work. But um, that I would be really interesting to see if that mm. has had some sort of influence on fiction. Because some of these other things that are, I don't want to say that they're superficial, but they're easier to see. They're easier mm-hmm. to 
to uh but like if somebody said oh yeah i uh this character that i'm doing here this this has a very like i want it to capture the the james rockford the jim rockford sense of of jim rockford honor right mm-hmm. uh it combined with his his uh his well-honed sense of self-preservation right, right? In, like in a weird way the the first place that i go to actually is bring star trek back into it is oh obviously <laughs> is a captain picard yeah as a character there's a different obviously it's a different character with a different portfolio right of mm-hmm. like what he is there to do for the show but that idea of there's of there's this like essential commitment to an essential commitment to to a morality or an essential mm-hmm. commitment to an ethical system that isn't a here are all the rules and I never break my own rules, but is more of a here are my principles and yeah. I will look at a situation through and in contrast to my principles. Mm-hmm. Um, the principles themselves, I mean, they might evolve. They don't really, I mean, neither of these characters, I think, evolve. Like, I think those are bedrock to the character. They're not. Yeah, yeah. They're not character arc elements yeah um but uh yeah and it doesn't mean they act the same way because they're different principles but the fact that they Mm -hmm. are there and they are humanistic is something that bridges that that makes like it makes total sense to me in the fiction why captain picard would be so obsessed with noir detectives right because that like you know a a honor honorable men in dishonorable circumstances is like something that kind of connects for me it's it's been bugging me <laughs> this this whole conversation. I just recently rewatched Who Framed Roger Rabbit, mm-hmm. uh, which came out after the Rockford Files, um, based on a book that probably was written before the Rockford Files. I'm not entirely sure. Uh, but what the reason why it came out to me is that he took the job for two hundred dollars. Oh, <laughs> so it, it was. I was nice. like, like somewhere very recently this happened. Um, and, uh, yeah, I would not, I would not be surprised that that wasn't in some way in dialogue with the rock files. But the question I have for the Picard thing is like mm-hmm. you said, it, it, it's not a surprise that he has this. Nathan and I are fans of a, a podcast about the holodeck <laughs> episodes of, uh, the Star Trek. And, um, we know that Picard likes to play this noir detective. So the question is that noir detective charges $20 a day, mm-hmm. which I, I would bet you, uh, 10 of his day's wages. <laughs> that was a reference to the Rockford Files. Oh, yeah. yeah I, I wonder if, if there is an influence there. I, I mean, a, a, a stated influence, mm. um, by someone. One, one could probably look up some, some, exhaustive star trek um yeah website somewhere to find that out but which uh maybe we'll leave it to those other podcasters to do sometime when when the conventions start rolling again Mm. um and when when uh i feel comfortable going to them again which (laughs) may not be the case ever uh and you have characters that have uh, actors and and people that have created television shows uh sitting there waiting to sign things I think I'm. I will just bring uh, bring my phone and just ask each and every one of them how they were influenced by the Rockford Files mm-hmm. <laughs> to find out. Yeah. Uh, not. I, I'm not trying to make light of Sam's question, which is a great. It obviously, inspired a lot of d- good discussion here. But I actually genuinely am now curious to to find out who 
can draw a lineage to to the Rockford Files, um, either directly or indirectly. Well, maybe we'll we'll leave that for further investigation as we do have some more questions to get to. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> but no, I think that's yeah. It's as as Sam says, big big question. But um, hey, you know what? I don't know why this just occurred to me now, but like we should punt this to our audience. Mm-hmm. Like if if you know mm-hmm. of influences, like absolutely email us two hundred a day podcast at gmail dot com. Yeah, uh, or hit us up on Twitter, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. and yeah, we'd love to hear about it. Start making one of those conspiracy maps with the thread and the yeah, that'd be good. We'll put it on the inside of the the closet door, so mm-hmm. you don't know until you go into the closet, and then <gasps> okay. All right. Uh, here's uh, a question. We'll go from the general to the specific with our next question from a mm-hmm. from a patron, Paul, who asks, Hi. That's not the question. <laughs> Hi, Paul. Um, I've loved some of the recent apps. Thank you. And it's mm-hmm. been great to listen to how much you find in each episode. Uh, my question is to ask about your takes on the music. Of course, the incredible theme tune, but also the incidental music, which does so much with the basic theme. In YouTube, there are season-based compilations of music that I sometimes work along to. Uh, Good to know. Mm -hmm. But I wondered what you might want to bring to a discussion about that from your various worlds. Uh, It's really a pleasure to keep tuning in to hear you. Well, thanks, Paul. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I gave up making notes about music in my notes uh, because because we keep going huh there's some good music here right exactly like so i'm not the most musically literate person um like uh i could very poorly recite almost every sabbath song to you that's a thing i can do um but i in the beginning when we were doing this I, every single time something interesting happened in the music i would make a note of it but it was very hard uh for us as we have our discussion to put that in context mm-hmm. because the timing of the music is so important and w- when we talk about what happened in the show it it's not it's you know it's it's beat for beat but it's not beat for beat you know you know what i'm <laughs> right, saying right. yeah sometimes i mean you would know this if you listen to the show um i do sometimes put in some of the music like when we're specifically talking about it to if i listen to the show i it, would know yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, okay <laughs> no no but i I, which I only say to to say that yeah. sometimes you have to hear the transition or you have to hear yeah. the music with the dialogue or hear how the dialogue drops out or whatever to like yeah. get why we're like, oh, this moment was so good. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so th- that is hard for us to convey when we're just talking about it. I 100% agree on the music. I will definitely check out those YouTube uh, mm-hmm. compilations. There, there have been moments, I mean, like more recently, the... Um, not Requiem for the Funny Box, the other one that we just did. Um, oh, um, the, the, our, our latest episode. Um, Caledonia, It's Worth a Fortune. Yes. Um, it did some amazing things with the theme song and the banjo mm-hmm. when the chase sequences started that you, like, you don't often hear from me saying they did something amazing with the banjo, but they did something amazing <laughs> with the with banjo. The um, and I agree, like, uh, the way the incidental music weaves the theme in and out from time to time or um and then just like like we've always kind of commented on when there's like a very interesting directorial choice Mm -hmm. and oftentimes the ones that have the most striking directorial choices also have like these i'm gonna say weird but i don't mean it in a derogatory way like just these different from the normal episode they they stand out 
Yeah. And like how the music is a part of those scenes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, uh, agree with all of that. Um, I have a couple, again, logistical notes from, uh, paraphrasing out of a section devoted to this in Ed Robertson's book, which is that, uh, so the, all the theme music, right, is, uh, Mike Post and Pete Carpenter. Um, I don't know anything about about them other than the way that this is phrased here is that like yeah. Mike Post is kind of the guy you talk to and then he works with Pete Carpenter to do the actual work. Oh, um, that's interesting. <laughs> like they are collaborators, but like Right. Uh, Pete Carpenter just doesn't talk to anyone. Right. I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe not to cast aspersions. I'm just saying this is all phrased um mostly from Post's point of view. But um he's brought in by Cannell to do the music. So again, creatively you know yeah it's a it's a steve cannell joint they they were really the groundbreakers of doing rock music like like you doing tv music based in rock and roll or other popular music genres as opposed to classical right tv scores and i you know movie scores work from the tradition of silent movies and generally were, you know, composed for orchestras, right? Mm-hmm. And then um, in this section, there's a quote from Post talking about uh, Henry Mancini, who, if you've been watching Columbo, you may recognize as yeah. the, uh, the, the, the Columbo theme guy, um, who innovated the repetition score, which I think this is just what we're, what I'm used to because I don't really watch a lot of TV Mm-hmm. before the, the rockford files or columbo other than the prisoner which has its own yeah rock its own thing kind of <laughs> thing going on with its own music so this is this is a period where like the the tv music was transitioning or at least mm-hmm. movies, right uh so mike post credits Stephen cannell with kind of like giving them the direction to get them to what they got mm-hmm. to we talked about the kind of guy Rockford was, how he was more interested in collecting his 200 a day plus expenses than in catching bad guys, and that he was kind of quirky, how because he'd been to the joint, he had a kiss my ass attitude towards the police, despite his friendship <laughs> with Becker, how he was friends with Angel, even though he knew Angel would steal him blind if he could, and how he also had a wryness and sweetness about him, which you could see in his relationship with Rocky. Uh, we tried to write music that has humor. We wanted to create music that was tongue in cheek, but at the same time with your fist on your hip, as if you're saying, hey, kiss my ass. So recently, I watched a YouTube compilation of 30-some shows that were introduced during, like, the fall or mid-season lineup across all three USA channels, the uh, ABC, NBC, and CBS, Mm -hmm. for one year. Like, it was this one year where they introduced, like, 30-some shows, and it was in the early 80s. I don't remember the exact year, whatever. If you you go online and look at... uh, look it up it's it's very intriguing to see because they just play the opening credits for each one of the shows and it's kind of fun to guess what the show's <laughs> meant to be or whatever but that that's a lot of television right what makes me think of is just like how you could phone that in when it comes to for theme music they could be like hey we just need something in this mood mm-hmm. and you just play something in that mood and you let it go but they go through the trouble to like know the characters and <laughs> decide that this is the this is the music that will reflect the characters i mean I'm not saying that this is unheard of or it doesn't happen all the time or whatever. I don't know. I haven't been involved I mean, in it. Half of those shows that you're talking about were probably scored by Post and Carpenter. 
Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's true. That's very true, actually. <laughs> um, but it just, it's very, it's, it, that's interesting to me. Well, I just love how distilled, I mean, so that was, I was, you know, reading a quote from yeah. him and like, I just love how distilled that is of like, here are all of Jim's character elements. Right. And here are the other characters that reflect those character elements. I guess that makes sense coming from Cannell. <laughs> like, here's the yeah, distillation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, specifically, uh, everyone mentions the harmonica. And I think yeah. that's where we get to the good. That's like, that's the Rockford instrument, right? Mm-hmm. There's not always harmonica, but when there is harmonica, you're like, oh yeah, this yeah, is, yeah. this is the good stuff. Yeah. It, it, it's that moment where you're like, oh, it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Whatever it is. What, something that I think is really interesting is that the music is most, at least to, to, you know, to my sensibility is real bluesy more yeah. than anything else. Like, you know, it's, it's using rock instruments but like the actual how it actually sounds to me is 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 pretty is pretty bluesy which is an interesting choice for a show that's set in malibu right right it's not surf rocky it's not yeah and it's not like um showbiz e like hollywood or something like that and i think i've never thought about it before until right mm-hmm. now but i think that's a testament to how well suited it is is it's like yeah Jim Rockford's kind of a bluesy character, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there was a uh, Portlandia had had a skit at one point about in um, the way all of the music for television at this one point in time in which the skit came out was just the steel guitar, uh, you know, like mm-hmm. blues, me- uh, not blues metal, but blues rock kind mm-hmm. of thing or whatever, which is not the, the kind of thing that you're talking about there. But it makes me think of like how horrible the Rockford Files theme would be if it was from that time <laughs> when it just uh, I like there's so much about this show that's iconic but the music is definitely a standout thing mm. and um yeah yeah what is there to say it's real good I will I will endeavor in future episodes to make notes of when the music does a thing that I'm like hey wait a minute what mm. the music did here was interesting uh to to mention in the actual podcast though for Paul <laughs> just for you Paul yeah the last thing I would say about this, and this actually leads into our, our final question oh, yeah. a little bit, is that, and I think we talk about it in the movie episodes, but how they update the theme yeah. for the 90s movies and how it's kind of like, it's not bad, but it's very 90s Yeah, in a way that like this theme doesn't necessarily, I mean, I guess it feels, I guess it feels 70s in the way that like, here's a long piece of TV theme because TV shows don't do that anymore. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess the even so the nine so like the nineties movies thus far, we haven't done the later ones yet, but they you know, they keep the, the actual, you know, motif mm-hmm. and some of the instrumentation, but like there's some synths, there's some Synth, like yeah. more rock guitar and somehow it's it hasn't aged as well as the original stuff. <laughs> like much of the nineties. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. And in fact, it actually has kind of a, a more of an '80s than a '90s feel, especially those early, those first two. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe later on they'll get a, a little more 
Jesus Jonesy, and then uh, I don't know. I haven't watched all the movies yet. <laughs> uh, uh, and then maybe they'll switch to grunge. They finally get to grunge. Yeah. Yeah. That that was the extent of my musical knowledge. <laughs> Jesus Jones grunge. That that was the nineties. Those were the there was the dividing line between the two. The very last one is a uh, new metal version. Yes. <laughs> uh, if only. Um, all right. So. This does get into our final question here where uh, our uh, patron Brian uh, at Thermoware on Twitter asks, I've seen all the TV episodes, but have never seen any of the movies. What's the premise for what has gone on in the time between the 1970s shows and the 1990s films? So I, I was thinking about this one, uh, and I don't remember if there's any, like, I don't think there's meant to be a gap, right? I think as far as in Jim's life, he just keeps plodding along right yeah. as the private eye it's not like he goes off and does something else right yeah and and so when we come back to him his his uh trailer is a little bigger mm-hmm. it's a little more uh revamped or whatever but not like it's sort of like somebody just spent the last 20 years saving up to to buy an extension onto his trailer <laughs> like that like that's the extent of it um and he he's a little older he's a little more beat up but all of the characters are still there. There was definitely some complications between Jim and Beth. Right. Uh, and we know IRL that uh, those are, are due to contractual things. But Beth, we've, we haven't. Wait, have we done an episode with Beth has returned to the Yeah, I think 90s? the we last did. movie we did. Yeah. Perhaps. Yeah. So kind of there's there's a couple things that are mentioned in the movies like there's no like here's an info dump of all the things that have happened yeah. since since 1980, right? Cuz that's yeah. or 1979. Um the first movie is kind of a because it's the return of the Rockford Files, right? So like it has the whole series of natural disasters. Oh right. And they that's all... kind of what we track Jim through the first part mm-hmm. of the movie. We kind of see him like hanging on through right. these all these things going on, all this unrest and everything in the early 90s. The title of it is I Still Love L.A., right? right like right. that's the so it's just sort of uh, a tribute to the area, despite all of the hardship that is hit. Right. So in that interim, it is established in that movie that he married and then divorced. Yes. This woman who is now the subject of the of, of this episode. Um, and we kind of get the you know, we get that sense of like he tried to settle down, but really he's kind of a hard guy to live with. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then in the one where we where Beth comes back, which I think might be the third movie. I, I yeah, guess I, I could so. look it up, but yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, Gretchen Corbett comes back. Beth comes back and it's established that she got married, mm-hmm. left her law practice and wrote a book. Yes. And Jim is kind of salty about her success, which yeah. is part <laughs> of the text, you know, part of part of that that movie. Uh, and like Dennis, you know, got a promotion finally. Yes. So he's a, he's a lieutenant. Um, Chapman's a commander <laughs> or not Chapman, <laughs> a deal. Deal's deal. a commander. Uh, Angel's Angel. Angel ages like a fine cheese. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think we, in our episodes about the movies, I think we talk about how like of all of them, I mean, they all really do seem like they just never miss a beat in terms of yeah. the character interactions everyone acts exactly how you would expect a older version of the <laughs> yes. person to act 
which is a testament to all of them as actors and, and everything. Um, so Noah Barry passes away. Yeah. Uh, but like he's right not right before the movie, the first movie comes out. I think he's, he's the character of, of Rocky exists in, in he doesn't, he's not on screen, but he's in the background of the, of the first one. Like I think they mentioned that he's fishing or something like that. They go to the graveyard. They go oh, to the grave. I thought that was later, a later one. Was that in the second one? Yeah. In the first one, there's a moment where they look at, where Jim like looks at a picture of Rocky. Yeah. Uh, and they do like an in memoriam thing. I think at the end. Yeah. Uh, maybe I'm getting my wires crossed about which movie is which. Um. So he he was in it. You know, he couldn't be in the movie. He was he was ill, so he wasn't in yeah. the first movie. But they do right because he has a phone conversation with Rocky, and then he has the picture on his desk, and that's in the first yeah. movie. Um. And that was filmed before he died. Oh, we've seen the fourth one. We've done the first four because uh, and this is the other bit. Um, is that the fourth movie is kind of centered around uh, Becker's, you know, Dennis's His, son. Dennis's son, yeah. Who Jim is the uh, the godfather for. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so we have we have four of those left to do, two of which are directed by Stuart Margolin. Right. And I cannot wait for that. <laughs> yeah, so I don't remember exactly the sequence, but yes, he couldn't be in the movies, of course. He, uh, uh, Noah Barry was... He, the actor passed away before the first movie premiered, but he was yeah. in it in in spirit. They had the conversation in the yeah. picture, and then he's established as having passed away sometime in between then and the next couple movies. I forget mm-hmm. exactly which one. Yeah. Anyways, so obviously we have um, Perfect Recall. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I guess which is all to say that, like, yeah, they don't sweat, like, building canon between them. It's more like they establish some things for fans, like people who watch the original show who want to see them pick up where they left off. Yeah. And they basically can kind of slot in any character with a little bit of, like, background <laughs> that could have happened any time in the last 15 years. And a lot of that feels l- much like the original TV series where you would occasionally get characters that Jim had history with and we're right, just right. like, oh yeah, he had history with them. That's all we yeah. need to know. There's, uh, I, if you're avoiding the movie or have been avoiding the movie. So uh, like the first four at least have no scrappy do. There's no, <laughs> there's no like, uh, there's no, here's my nephew. Yeah. Who's now going to help us out. I, uh, I was just thinking about like what, a uh, a Rockford files scrappy do would be like, and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm like, what well, they would do it right. They would just do it right. They well, did it, it would right be, with, with would, I mean, wouldn't it be, uh, Richie, Richie, yeah, Richie. he's, he's scrappy do. Yeah. They already did it. It is perfect. It's a great <laughs> setting up of Scrappy Doo, which mm. probably occurred a decade before Scrappy Doo did. So yeah. So I guess yeah. There's you. You get all of the establishment of things you need to know in order to make the relationships make sense. In the same yeah. way that the '70s episodes give you everything you need to know to make the make the relationships make sense. Um, yeah. They're just sometimes placed in time a little differently because of the because of the the era that they're in. Yeah. That brings us to the end of our questions thank you everyone for sending us thank you all that good stuff delectable questions things to dig into Mm -hmm. uh yeah i mean i'm looking forward to to uh more to (laughs) to getting to getting back to the show yeah (laughs) yeah yeah no we'll be we'll you know we'll see how how things go we have a bit of a time juggling well yeah we have a little bit of juggling to do with our schedules in the near future Mm -hmm. and then i think we'll be able to uh finish out the year pretty strong hopefully yeah and get to more 
more episodes of the Rockford Files. Perhaps more of the movies. Yeah. Uh, as we've been, as we were just talking about them, as we've been threatening to do, I feel like for like a year. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> to do the next movie. <laughs> but just looking at that list, uh, thank you, Brian, for, for putting, pointing us at that list because it, that has definitely now put that in the forefront for mm-hmm. me. I'm like, yeah, I want to hit that next one. Yeah. Thanks again. Um, we appreciate you listening. Uh, it, I think it, it continues to surprise and delight me that, uh, people listen to the show and like it so thank you all for that it's really uh as always a a bright spot for us as all of the wild times that we live in continue to be wild Mm -hmm. with that i suppose we will we will sign off perhaps to some good harmonica music (laughs) if i can uh, pull a representative sample for the end of the show but rest assured that we'll be back next time with another episode, or perhaps movie, of the Rockford Files. Yay!